Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hi, all the way from Tel Aviv. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about maxcoders.io. I'm still working on the tagline, but it's something about just helping developers max out their lives. We have a special guest this week, and that's Vitali Zeidman. Yeah, hello from Tel Aviv as well. I think I've probably butchered your name every time we've had you on. No, actually, it's great. Awesome. This episode is sponsored by Tidelift, the enterprise-ready open-source software managed for you solution. Tidelift provides commercial support and maintenance for the open source dependencies you use to build your applications, backed by the project maintainers. Save time, reduce risk, and improve code health. The Tidelift subscription is managed open source for application development teams. It covers millions of open source projects across JavaScript, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, .NET, and more. Your subscription includes security updates from Tidelift security response team that coordinates patches for new breaking security vulnerabilities and alerts immediately through a private channel so your software supply chain is always secure. Tidelift also verifies license information to enable easy policy enforcement and adds intellectual property indemnification to cover creators and users in case something goes wrong. You always have a 100% up-to-date bill of materials for your dependencies to share with your legal team, customers, and partners. Tidelift ensures the software you rely on keeps working as long as you need it to work. Your managed dependencies are actively maintained and we recruit additional maintainers when required. Tidelift helps you choose the best open source packages from the start and then guides you through the updates to stay on the best releases as new issues arise. Take a seat at the table with the creators behind the software you use. Tidelift's participating maintainers are more income as their software is used by more subscribers, so they're interested in knowing what you need. Tidelift supports GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and more. They support every cloud platform and other development targets too. The bottom line is you get all the capabilities you expect and require from commercial software, but now from the key open source software you depend on. Check them out at devchat.tv slash Tidelift. You want to just remind people who you are and, and, and then we can dive into the topic here? Yeah, I'm a full stack developer for more than seven years now. I work in a software consultancy by the name of uh, Weldon Software. Currently, I work with uh, takeaway.com. The, their Israeli website is Tembis, and we work a lot on SEO. So I have a lot of experience in this field. Nice. In fact, we were doing uh, my JavaScript story, and I think you mentioned that you'd been working on SEO for developers or something like that. And, yeah. um, and I was like, that's an awesome topic. And just to give a little bit of background, one of the things that I'm really working on these days is just covering some of the topics that developers need to understand in order to, like I said, max out their lives or max out their careers. And a lot of times, one of the things that we often ignore is anything on the sort of business end of things that isn't some like deep technical topic. And I know SEO kind of can border that line a little bit, but it can be really, really important and really valuable to your employer for you to have those skills. If you have those kinds of skills, you know, again, it's like the management skills and the you know, the the training skills and the mentoring skills and a lot of these other skills that we kind of consider soft skills. And then some of the business concerns, if you understand those, then you can add a ton of value to your employer and what they're doing. And then what happens is then you become more valuable there and it makes it easier for you to justify a raise, makes it easier for you to hold on to your job if there's some kind of economic downturn, makes it easier for you to get promoted. A lot of different things start working for you as you understand those things. So... I was like, sweet, let's talk about it. So do you want to give us kind of the elevator pitch as far as what SEO for developers looks like? 
Yeah, so first of all, I agree with you about the like learning different fields and different uh, stuff to promote yourself. It's it's so true. I saw it so many times. Well, in regard to SEO, so SEO stands for search engine optimization, which basically means that it's the process of making your website appear higher on search engines. And people usually focus on Google because they have a huge market share. By the way, it's not true for everybody, but usually people focus on Google and by uh, creating good SEO for Google, they also get nice SEO on other uh, search engines. So that's SEO in a nutshell, just promoting yourself on uh, Google. I can also add that SEO looked completely different like 10 years ago, I guess, maybe even less. SEO just a bunch of dirty tricks that people used to do. I don't know, like repeating the same word many times or I don't know. <laughs> I remember this. Putting, uh, <laughs> putting some like many words in a, a transparent box or something. So it's a bad idea to do it today because Google actually have a, a list of these abuses and they might penalize you or they most probably would penalize you for doing these things. So because Google intends to link people to the best websites uh, for their searches, and because they're so good in what they're doing, today the best thing to actually promote yourself on Google is to provide great content for your users. So that's from the business aspect. And for us, the developers, the best thing we can do is uh, to optimize the website for SEO which means just to expose this great content to Google in the best way, to make the site uh, smooth, to make it operational, to make it secure, to make it accessible, to make it work on mobile, things like that. That's in a nutshell. So I know there's tons of different things that you can do, but what percentage of this just goes back to like having good semantic markup and taking the time to understand some of the stuff that we take for granted, like our styling and just basic JavaScript stuff. Well, yeah. So Google looks at your HTML and that's actually what they're doing. They parse your HTML and then they look at the structure of your website to try to understand how valuable is it. And also uh, they look how users interact with it. So having all these um Good semantics helps Google understand what is your site about. So that's the reason why it is important. Also, you have many tags like the title tag, which uh, determines how your website would look uh, on the Google uh, results pages and the description tag. And you have all these tags that prevent duplication, like uh, not all these tags, the canonical, uh, the meta canonical tag. That's a big part of what developers usually do to improve SEO. So basically what you're saying is that task number one is just make your website, just use better semantic HTML is probably the first thing you should be doing. Yes, I think it is. Also, uh, because it's kind of easy in general, like don't use div. If you see an article, just use an article, yeah. Yeah, but how will people know that I'm a developer if I don't use a lot of divs? <laughs> you can use spans too, Dan. It's okay. Well, spans with display block, I guess, is okay as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why I asked the question. I think 
There's a lot of people that enter JavaScript and web development from like the HTML, CSS route. So they're pretty educated in this. But then there's also a portion of the community that might enter from like a like maybe more quote unquote traditional background, like learning Java in college where they're just learning like computer science and programming and not really HTML and CSS. And because HTML and CSS are like not programming languages, I think sometimes people dismiss them. But depending on where you're working, if you're working for like a a company that targets consumers, then taking the time to, you know, understand some of HTML and CSS at a at a like deeper level is going to be beneficial, even if it is kind of easy. Yeah, it's also it also depends on the size of your company because bigger companies has the privilege of having dedicated teams for SEO. And they usually catch these uh, things and just tell the developers uh, how to improve them. For example, like in, in the company that I work with, uh, takeaway.com, they have a big, uh, okay, it's not a big department of SEO, but they have a department of SEO with people who are like hardcore experts on this. They work on SEO for many, many years. If they see something like, uh, I don't know, a rock, wrong tag being used somewhere, for example, I don't know, we use the, like, like they told us, I don't know, use H1 instead of a div or use H2, things like that. They see the things, but this topic is mostly problematic in smaller companies because they don't have these people who specialize in this field. I suggest them reading at least the what Google exposes to the public. We obviously added to the links of this podcast and below. So Google has its own guidelines on how to do the things. Yeah, just read it. It's not it's not long and you would learn a lot of stuff from there. Just implement it everywhere. I, I, I kind of want to jump in Sorry. on this a little bit, you know, not not just in the sense of yeah, using H1 tags and the makeup of the website. It's I mean, there are a lot of things that go into it and and Google looks for a lot of different things. I mean, not having, you know, erroneous HTML on your page and having things reflect in the right way makes a lot of sense. I've been spending a lot of time working on the SEO for devchat.tv and, you know, we, we've seen a pretty significant bump by working on it. And, and I guess SEO is, is measured, I guess, in how you rank for the keywords that you're targeting. And so there's going to be a certain amount of content that goes into it as well. But beyond that, the other thing that I found is that Google provides you a ton of tools to actually track this stuff. And so, for example, one of the things that we've done on devchat.tv is Google allows you to add questions and answers to the web, web pages. There's a format for this. It's a JSON something or other. I can't remember exactly what the format is. But you, you put those questions in. They like you to show the, Q, the questions, the Q&A on the page as well. The FAQ is what they're calling it. But yeah, then you can put that in and it'll show up. So if you do a Google search for a particular topic and you see like the questions that come after a particular article, those have actually been embedded in that article. You know, Google likes you to play along with what they're putting out there as well so that they can provide better results for the search results and things like that. So so yeah, so there are a lot of other things that go into it. One other thing that I figured out too that helps your SEO is the, the page speed. And just having like your images optimized and having your code minified and things like that, a lot of that stuff that goes into your build process is also going to vastly make a difference in your... Uh, 
If I could just add before we move to that, obviously SEO is a significant carrot for having proper semantic HTML, but that's not the only motivation. I mean, if you care about accessibility, if you care about the proper structure of your of your page, I mean, you know, if you want people, let's say, that are using screen readers to be able to properly access your content, you definitely want to have semantic HTML. So, like I said, having, you know, getting good SEO's result is a significant carrot, but that's certainly not the only reason you want to be using proper HTML. Yeah, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Because, for example, if you add even more accessibility features to your website, then you get to a bigger audience. And also Google rewards you with higher SEO. So that's another example. And also, if you make your site accessible on mobile or fast on mobile, people would use your website uh, more smoothly. Your conversion rates would go up, and also Google ranks you higher. So the reason for that, I think, is because Google tries to see trends in the market, and they uh, rank for these trends. So for example, something like a year ago, Google uh, started ranking pages based on how they look on mobile. And that's because uh, the world started using uh, mobile much more. So they saw this trend that people are using mobile phones and they want to give their users the best results. And that's why they uh, switched and start, started uh, indexing and looking at page pages as they're rendered on mobile. Regarding the question and answers, it's called structured data. And yes. it enriches your uh, the data that is shown to users on the search result pages. So for example... I'm working with restaurants, like food ordering uh, service. So we have opening hours, we have price ranges, we have these uh, like maps. And it's when you see all these things on uh, the search results, as a user of uh, Google, you're much more likely to click on it because you get all the information you need up front. And that's a very good practice to do. It's called snippets or something, isn't it? It's called structured data. It's just adding a JSON on top of your, to the header of your HTML. I recently saw a video where they showed that uh, even just having if a table of relevant content in your page, just the you know, HTML table element, and if you're ranked number one, there's a good chance that Google will actually extract that table out of your page and embed that into the search result. So it, it goes beyond JSON, per my understanding. Yes, as far as I understand, and that's another thing that changed very, very recently. Google uses the latest Chrome now. So they use an evergreen uh, Chrome to crawl your website. They look at it as they're just users and they have very advanced algorithms to read the content and to parse it. They can even parse uh, podcasts. They can even like parse the audio. Mm-hmm. And... That's exactly what you said before. They can do it, but we should probably help them. You know, we, we should probably optimize for SEO. So we will be sure that they extract exactly the content that we want. So, for example, in a podcast, you would uh, consider transcripting the whole podcast for this reason to have keywords on your uh, podcast uh, result page even though Google uh, says they're doing it, but you, you don't want to trust them on this. 
they actually uh, crawl your website and they pull things out of like audio tags and yeah, a bunch of other places. And yeah, it definitely helps if you have the right meta information around things to make it so they can find them. I work a lot with Google Speed Insights. So I have uh, a lot of information about it. And uh, if you want to get into it now. Yeah, that I think that would yeah. be a, definitely a cool topic. It's one that I've been looking at a lot as well. So it will be interesting to exchange information. Okay. So Google Speed Insights. Google uses a tool that's called Google Speed Insights to assign a score to your website regarding its performance. They currently only look at uh, the performance of how your website loads, but they intend to use similar tools to see how your website performs in general. But as I said, currently they only look how your website loads. They use uh, two tools to achieve it. First of all, they have real field data. So I think uh, most of the people don't know it, but if you opt in to help improve Chrome's features and performance when you install Chrome, it tracks how fast websites load on your Chrome and they collect this information to understand how fast uh, web pages load. So they actually collect data from real users and try to rank pages based on this metric. Okay? Uh, Yeah, this is called the Chrome uh, Crux or uh, Chrome User Experience Report. It's worth mentioning that all this information is actually available you can actually run it's it all goes into a big query database and you can actually run queries on that data so that's yes that's indeed a very useful source of information to to learn about the performance of your own website assuming you have enough visitors because they do set a certain mark which they don't advertise that the number of visitors that you get is below that uh, mark then they, they you're not your site won't be in that in that database because they Consider it that there's not enough uh, visits to to have uh, to calculate proper statistics for it. Yeah, exactly. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Also, they use uh, lab data which is uh, just using their own uh, machines to navigate to your website using uh, the latest Chrome. By the way, it doesn't have any special user agent, so you can't uh, detect it in general, but uh, they use real devices or simulated devices in case of mobile, and they navigate to your web page. They uh, collect all kinds of uh, metrics from your website. For example, when the first input was received. So how fast did you respond to the request to get to the website? Or first contentful paint, which means something contentful and big was painted. Time to interactive is an important one since the last uh, algorithm change a few months ago. 
time to interactive means the moment where the user can interact with the page. So there's all these metrics and Google always changes the form- formula and the, the metrics they use to calculate your score. But the important thing to remember is that it's pretty easy to get a good score on desktop, but the moment you get to mobile, it's very, very hard. Like many websites have a score which is less than 10 or less than 20 because first of all, Google uses a mid-tier device or sorry, they simulate a mid-tier device. They simulate Moto G4. It might change in the future when uh, the technology, the mobile technology advances, but currently they use Moto G4 and they use a very slow internet connection. So they use an internet connection with 150 milliseconds latency and uh, 1.6 megabits per second, which is 200 kilobytes per second download speed. And the 150 millisecond latency means that every request to a new domain would take you around a second because you have a DNS lookup, takes 150 milliseconds, a connection, then you have SSL authentication, then you need to fetch the data, and the internet is slow. So you would probably fetch it not really fast. So it means that every single uh, script you add from, I don't know, third-party library, or if you add some kind of analytics, it all adds up. And in the end, your website loads like in 10, 20 seconds on mobile. These numbers are just unbelievable. Yeah, I just wanted to add two things. First of all, uh, to mention the technology that they use to to drive Google PageSpeed Insights, which is, you know, if you Google for Google PageSpeed Insights, you will actually find this tool and you can easily put in your website and see the scores that you get. But the tool that they actually use to drive this, the technology actually, is called Lighthouse. It's integrated now essentially into almost all of Google's um, uh, performance auditing tools. You even have it built into Chrome DevTools. So if you go into Chrome DevTools to the audit tab, that's essentially the same technology. So it's Lighthouse there in the DevTools, and it's also Lighthouse in, in Google PageSpeed Insights. And you will get more or less similar results. Uh, it will vary, obviously, because you're you're testing at a different geolocation, uh, geo whatever, but the results will generally be kind of similar. And it's also in the webdev.dev uh, website. They have the same, the same tool. And also on webpagetest.org, you can actually run Lighthouse from there as well from different locations. So this tool is really all over the place. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, we're looking at it from the perspective of SEO, but you also need to remember that, you know, we in the developed world tend to think that, oh my God, like uh, Moto G4, that's so slow, and 3G, that's so slow. But for a lot of people out there, that's the reality of their browsing experience. So if you're getting a low Google PageSpeed Insight score, PSI score, uh, that's a potential indication that uh, if you've got users that say, I don't know, in India or the Philippines or, or South America, you know, that might, they might be getting a pretty poor experience as well when they try to visit your website. So it's, it's not just uh, the Google bots, it's, it's potentially your visitors as well. From my experience, the simulation of Moto G4 is great. I, I mean, I took an actual Moto G4. I navigated to our website, a place in the office where the connection is not very good. 
and the results were exactly the same. So yeah, what Google says is true <laughs> in general. By the way, performance is uh, the main thing that users look for. It predicts conversion rates and user experience pretty well. So as uh, Dan said before, aim for good performance, aim for fast websites. It's very important, not only for SEO. Yeah, totally agree. Obviously, performance is important. Like uh, Vitaly said, performance is important for the success of your website. And Google have stated that performance is one of the considerations that they're taking into account when determining, you know, the, the ranking for your site. Mm-hmm. What I've not seen is any explicit statement talking about how your performance directly impacts your ranking or and even more specifically how your score in a tool like Google PageSpeed Insight impacts your ranking, if at all. So what I'm actually asking is if Vitaly has seen any explicit statement from people at Google or from the SEO community at large that correlates more directly between page performance and the SEO beyond the general statement that having good performance is good for SEO. Well, I think this question can be applied to many things on SEO because Google is very vague about their uh, algorithms and like they have uh, so many factors there. We can only assume that it uh, does because of vague statements, but no one can say for sure. And also they update the algorithm like once or twice a day. They make really big algorithms changes all the time once or twice a year, they also update Google Lighthouse all the time. So I wouldn't say that when you improve your speed, you actually significantly improve your SEO directly, but you might improve it because people would experience the website better. And you might also get rewarded by uh, the SEO gods, but... uh, I don't think we know that for sure. So here's a bit of information that I've been able to find. I did, like I said, some digging before the show. So uh, back in July 2018, Google introduced an update to their engine. They've done some updates since then. So this information might itself be dated. But they did something called the speed update in which they said that they will take website performance into account for SEO, but, and here I'm quoting, that it will only affect pages that deliver the slowest experience to users and will only affect a small percentage of queries. So, like I said, I'm I'm in total agreement that you should strive to have the best performing site that you possibly can and that the performance of your site is probably one of the key factors for the success of your site. I am to an extent, questioning if how much impact it currently directly has on your SEO. And just to give another specific example, you know, if I do a, a Google search for news, just the word news, then not only I will get CNN and Fox News in the first page, but both of these sites actually have a fairly abysmal 
Google PSI score. So for Fox News, the PSI score, I think, is something like 30-something for desktop and 20-something for mobile. And if you think that's bad, then the score for CNN is 10 for desktop and one out of 100 for mobile. So I guess that they're in the first page because, you know, Google tries to figure out intent and they assume that when people look for news, they want to see CNN and they want to see Fox News. So it makes sure put them there. And obviously, if your site does not have such branding and you're trying to build your success and move up the ranks, then obviously your story is going to be very different from that. So again, I, I don't intend to mean that you should ignore performance. You know, <laughs> that's more or less the definition of my job at Wix. If, if I would say that to ignore performance, I'd be out of a job. But I am saying that, you know, we should be careful about directly correlating between performance and SEO. Okay. And also, I think sometimes people get obsessed with several aspects of SEO, like performance, like links, like SEO content, which means basically writing a lot of words, meaningful words. And all these things are, we kind of only assume it helps. So again, I, I, I get back to my initial advice, just make good websites for your users and don't get obsessed over any point, especially if you're a small startup or something. Don't uh, spend too much time on performance per se. I mean, obviously you probably should focus on performance as well, but don't, don't get obsessed over certain aspects by themselves. Yep. Another thing to remember is that since Google uses the evergreen uh, Chrome browser to make the lab measurements of speed on your website, you can use all the latest features of Chrome. So for example, you can use a native lazy loading of images and just add this small this very, very small attribute to all your images where they get loaded lazily, which means Google would uh, load much less data when they navigate to your website and rank it for speed. So that's another piece of advice. Makes sense. All right, well, we've got to get to picks because we have another episode coming up for recording here in about 10 minutes. Um, but before we do that, Vitali, do you want to just remind people uh, where they can find you online? Sure. First of all, I'll include a link to an article I just wrote about SEO, just an overview for developers. So that's my medium.com profile. And also uh, on Twitter, twitter.com slash vzeidman. Awesome. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Let's do some picks. Amy, do you have some picks for us? 
I do. I'm going to go with the one we were talking about Spotify um, before we started the call. It looks pretty cool. It is like a basically, I don't know, it looks like a CLI for Spotify, just like a command line tool written in Rust. So I know I listen to Spotify constantly at work. So the fact that maybe I can just do this from my command line and not have to use the GUI looks pretty cool. So that's going to be my pick. All right, Dan, what are your picks? Well, uh, I might have mentioned this before, but uh, I'll be attending Crove Dev Summit in, on November 11th and 12th in San Francisco. Hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, you know some of the listeners might be there as well. And if that's the case, I'd be really happy to meet and chat with whomever is there. So do feel free to contact me about that. The best way would be to simply search for Dan Shapiro on Twitter and uh, you know DM me or send me a message or whatever. Like I said, I would love to meet. Continuing my quest to educate our listeners about excellent but lesser-known fantasy books and fantasy authors, this time I want to mention uh, one of the, my fa- all-time favorite books. It's called The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers. Like I said, one of my all-time favorite books, although this is really not standard high fantasy. It actually takes place in our own world, but it's really weird and an amazing combination of magic and science fiction and time travel and, and whatnot. And it combines ancient Egyptian mythology and romantic English poetry and gritty action and adventure even a little bit of horror. It's very, very highly recommended. Like I said, one of my all-time favorite books in this genre. So uh, those would be my picks. All right. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So on Saturday, I ran my first marathon. I ran the St. George Marathon. It was really kind of an interesting experience. Even when I was at the starting line, the idea of actually running a marathon still felt completely foreign and impossible to me. But at the same time, I've driven the road (laughs) that uh, the marathon goes down a bunch of times. And the idea of actually running down it didn't seem impossible. So anyway, it's just kind of interesting to think about the the different ideas that go through your head. So it it was pretty cool, though. So I'm going to pick the St. George Marathon. St. George is about an hour and a half outside of Las Vegas, if you're wondering, in Utah. So you drive through the, the canyon there in uh, or the gorge in Arizona to get there or to get to Las Vegas from St. George but yeah it was pretty awesome had a great time what and did you think about when you ran so so many hours <laughs> so that's my other pick um <laughs> i put my headphones in and i listened to an episode of it was an interview that Glenn Beck did with a former Isis bride which was really interesting just to see the the viewpoint there you know, because she's, you know, she's changed her views on life and, you know, actually goes and helps uh, rehabilitate people who are radicalized. Anyway, so it was really fascinating just to kind of hear some of the things that she went through and some of the processes that she went through to kind of change what she thought about the world and things like that. And then the rest of it, I listened to The Adventure Zone. And that that's my other pick is The Adventure Zone. It's a podcast of people playing Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, yeah. I had just enough episodes left on that story arc to get me through the rest of the marathon. And then I listened to the final episode of that story arc on the way home from St. George when I was driving home. So yeah, The Adventure Zone is a fun show, especially if you really enjoy Dungeons & Dragons. They kind of fudge on the rules a little bit if you're real legalistic about that kind of thing. So 
if you play Dungeons and Dragons and you're looking for them to be like expert players that always do the things that are in the manuals, it's probably going to bother you a little bit. However, I am much more about the story. And so for me, it was it was just fun to listen through the story and see where things ended up. And then, of course, they have a Q&A episode after that. They call the the Adventure Zone Zone. And uh, anyway, it was just a fun, you know, people asked a bunch of questions and stuff. So, yeah. I have an amusing image in my mind of you running in place before the finish line because you haven't finished the, the episode <laughs> you're listening to. <laughs> no, so you don't have to do that because what you do is when you, when you finish, you walk through and you get your medal. So I got a medal. It's not actually made of metal, incidentally. Polished sandstone, the one they give you from St. George Marathon. And then you walk into the park and they give you like, uh, you know, the bananas and and stuff so that you, you know. And so you, you pass out on the grass and then you listen to the rest of the episode there. So, yeah. And I did take a few minutes to recover and then went and picked up my stuff and drove back to the condo we were staying at. So, but yeah, it's, it's good stuff. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm probably going to try and do another one in like March. We'll see. Vitali, what are your picks? Yeah, so I'm from a Russian descent, so I have uh, I have recently discovered the, the website Arzamas Academy, which is a website uh, that creates really quality content about the Russian culture and the Russian language. So if you spend several hours on this website, you would be kind of educated on this topic. And if you spend a dozen of hours on it, then you would obviously be more educated on this topic. So... I suggest people who understand Russian and want to learn a little about uh, the Russian descent and stuff. Uh, this website is awesome. They create very short and very short videos, and they're of a very high quality. So, uh, yeah, that's my pick. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Yeah, I'm Thank looking you. forward to this one coming out. And it was really interesting to kind of dive in and talk, I guess, a little bit more about building for an end user that's not really an end user it's a search engine so yeah it's both all right folks well we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will be back next week bye 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 bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more